Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I've been redeemed. Sometimes it's good to remember that we were once shackled in the slavery of sin. We can forget that sometimes, that we have been changed. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse. We're now in the book of 1 Kings, and so welcome back to our study. Let's dig right in, down to verse 41 in chapter 11. It says, Then the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. For it came about when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury those killed in battle, and had struck and killed every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there for six months till he had eliminated every male in Edom. Solomon's many marriages had been his guarantee of peace with the neighboring rulers, and Solomon's reign had once been a peaceful one. But now his system would start to fall apart. For the Lord has raised up adversaries against Solomon and used them to discipline the rebellious king. The first source of trouble for Solomon came from one of Israel's ancient enemies, the Edomites. But what I want us to get is verse 14 where it says, It was the Lord who raised up the adversary against Solomon. You know what, my friends? The Lord has yet to make his first empty threat. Yes, there are instances in Scripture where he changed his mind. But in each of those cases, either intercession or repentance was involved, both of which are part of his plan for dealing with mankind. But never, not once, has he ever given a hollow warning. The first point is introduced with the words, and the Lord raised up. Now, the impact of these words are accentuated by the fact that the Lord raised up is a phrase that the reader of the Bible would not have heard since the book of Judges. There, the Lord raised up judges or deliverers. Now we are about to read that the Lord has raised up something very different. We are at a turning point in Israel's history. Taken together, these truths add up to an inescapable inescapable conclusion, and it is simply this. If we ignore God's warnings, we are not just flirting with disaster. We are holding out a ring and asking it to marry us. Have you ever heard somebody say, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission? The first time I heard somebody say that, I chuckled and thought, that's clever. So I added it to my repertoire of witty remarks. Since then, I've even said it myself, all all with a touch of humor and never for anything really serious. Unless you consider a momentary strain from my heart-healthy diet serious. You all know my love affair with those other women, Little Debbie, Sarah Lee, and Betty Crocker. But what if there isn't a chance to ask for forgiveness? Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? The word Ananias in Hebrew means God is gracious. 
Sapphire is an Aramaic word that means beautiful. Talk about two people who didn't live up to their names. Mr. Gracious really isn't so gracious in his deception here. And Miss Beautiful did something that wasn't so beautiful. Now, when I read about Ananias and Sapphira, can I just play with this a little bit? As Ananias, Mr. Gracious, looked at Miss Beautiful and she swooned, not knowing how they would end up. And as they said their vows to one another on their wedding day, especially that part, till death do us part, they had no idea at that time that they would die within a few hours of each other on the same day. And that their names would go down in history as the two that the Lord subtracted from the church to keep it pure. In Acts 5, we're told they sold a piece of property and gave a portion of the sale of that to the apostles. The problem was they lied to make themselves look more spiritual than they really were by telling the apostles they were giving them the entire purchase price. So imagine Ananias speaking to his wife as they were plotting this little deception. He would say, honey, I, I know what we're doing isn't really right. But we're not hurting anybody, and it's not like we are stealing or anything. And besides, if we get caught, we can always apologize. You know those apostles as well as I do. Those guys are all about grace and forgiveness. So don't worry. Everything will be just fine. You may remember, though, that they did indeed get caught. And Ananias was not even given an opportunity to make things right. Peter chewed him out. And then the Bible says, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. <laughs> Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say that the Holy Spirit acted today in the same manner as he acted there. You need a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on staff. Not only that, who says there will be an opportunity to make things right? I can think of four scenarios where that would not be the case. One, you could die before you have a chance to make things right. Two, the person you assume will forgive you may not. Three, your actions could produce ripple effects that extend far beyond your reach. And finally, four, your actions could cause damage that is impossible to repair. So I would suggest that the trouble you're experiencing just might be God's discipline if one of the more following possibilities is true. Now what I'm about to say is my opinion. So you can feel free to disagree. And you may be right on this, and I may be wrong on this. But I believe that God doesn't generally lower the boom on us because we commit just one sin, depending on what it is, of course. I believe that before he does that, he always gives us plenty of space to repent by convicting us by the Holy Spirit over and over again. Now, if you stab somebody in the face with a fork, God's probably going to convict you pretty discipline, I mean, discipline you pretty quickly. But in my opinion, that's always the exception. It is this. When we allow sin to take root and grow, and when the path of our life veers off in the wrong direction, 
That is when God is likely to respond. This, of course, was Solomon's problem. Now, keep in mind, the sin in question doesn't even have to be of the headline-making variety. It might even be quite small by the world's standards. The thing I want us to get is we can't continually provoke God to his face if we are his children and not expect him to eventually step in. Look at verse 17, please. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and the certain Edomites of his father, servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. They set out from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage to the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes the queen. And the sister of Taphanes gave birth to his son Ganubath, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Ganubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David lay down with his fathers, and that Joab the commander of the army was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go so that I may go to my own country. However, Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that you are here, requesting to go to your own country? And he answered, Nothing. Nevertheless, you must let me go. God also raised up another adversary against him, Rezon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the harm that Hadad inflicted, and he felt disgust for Israel and reigned over Aram. In David's time, Joab had led the army on a six-month campaign in Edom. There had been a massive destruction of the Edomite army. But the young prince, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line, had managed to escape to Egypt. Now, Egypt had good reasons to cultivate warm relations with her Arab neighbors, so Hadad was treated with kindness. Now, we've already read that the Lord has raised up an adversary. Did you know that in the Hebrew, the word adversary can be translated as Satan? So we could accurately translate verse 14, and the Lord raised up Satan against Solomon. What's that about? We'll never read that on a bumper sticker or on a Christian t-shirt. What that's about is the sovereignty of God Almighty. This is the opposite of the deliverers he had raised up in the book of Judges. This adversary, as we will see, was not even aware of the Lord's purpose. He was, we may reasonably suppose, driven by thoroughly wicked motives of revenge, hatred, and self-serving ambition. It was a case of the Lord using human evil to accomplish his good purposes. Hadad's name means the thunderer, or the one who smashes. It was the name of an ancient Semitic storm god, the deity of rain, with lightning as his weapon and thunder being his voice. The Bible makes the striking point that this man, bearing the name of a foreign god, was raised up by the Lord, the God of Israel. 
God is sovereign over all the earth. And it was from God that Solomon's heart had turned away to other gods like this storm god of Hadad. I ask you, what could be more foolish? Hadad's story is profound. It teaches us to see that there are consequences in life and human history beyond our natural understanding of cause and effect. There are consequences because God is sovereign. What is amazing to me is that he has prepared or raised up the consequences of Solomon's unfaithfulness long before Solomon's heart had even turned away from him. Now, of course, this is difficult for any of us to understand. That is because, newsflash, we are not God. But let us understand this. The consequences in our lives and in the history of the world, both for good and evil, are in God's hands. And he is never taken by surprise. Did you know that God has never not once said, oopsie? <laughs> the story of Hadad follows the main plot lines of the Exodus in which Moses and the children of Israel escape from Egypt and return to the promised land. Except that everything in Hadad's story is completely backwards. What I mean is the nation coming out of Egypt is not Israel, but Edom. The turnabout is God's doing, not for Israel's benefit, but for Israel's detriment. We read that when David conquered the Edomites, Hadad as a little boy was taken to Egypt in order that his life might be spared. And as he grew up, he found great favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. But one day he felt just a stirring in his heart to leave the comfort of Pharaoh's palace and return back to Israel. God caused that stirring because he was raising Hadad up to be an adversary against Israel. One thing I want us to notice this morning is that during the same time that Pharaoh was selling chariots to Solomon and offering the hand of his daughter in marriage, at that exact same time he was harboring Israel's enemies. All that is true. But why does the Bible tell that story in so much detail? Let me give you my take on this. I believe one thing it teaches us is that sin is never our friend. No matter how friendly it may seem or in what costume it may come. In the background, sin is always plotting our demise. The Bible says that Satan has come to the earth to do three things, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. Honey, this is Galatians 6, 7 to a T that teaches us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his own flesh reap destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. An old story fits perfectly here, I think. A man started to climb a high, steep mountain when a snake asked the man to carry him along. But you're a snake, the man said. The snake smiled. Don't worry, I won't bite you. 
After days of arduous climbing, the man reached the mountain summit, whereupon the poisonous snake immediately bit him. And as he lay dying, the man cried out, You said you wouldn't bite me. His reptilian hitchhiker looked at him and said, You fool. You knew I, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. I wonder how many snakes we've picked up in our lifetimes. We do certain things, even though the consequences we pay are the same, time after time. We knew it was a snake when we picked it up. But the spanking is not over yet for Solomon. We're then introduced to another adversary named Rezon. We aren't told much about him, but it seems like he led a band and was involved in guerrilla warfare against Solomon and his kingdom. And it's about to get even worse. Verse 26, please. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built a Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Here we are introduced to a man who is going to become a third thorn in Solomon's flesh. Jeroboam. Not only was Jeroboam industrious, but he was also extremely gifted. Yet, although he has ability, it seems that he had no history with God. Although he had talent, he wasn't tempered. Although he was an incredibly blessed man, he wasn't a broken man. We've learned that Hadad attacked Solomon from the south and Rezon from the north, but Jeroboam was one of Solomon's own leaders who threatened the king from within the official ranks. That means that Solomon's greatest problem was not to be external, but internal. His policies had created conditions ripe for rebellion. All that was needed was an individual around whom that opposition could coalesce. And that person proved to be Jeroboam, son of Nebat, a man from the tribe of Ephraim, the largest and most influential of the northern tribes. And ironically, Jeroboam was promoted by Solomon himself to the very position where he could do the most damage. It says he was a man of standing, which is a term that describes his ability more than his character. But when Solomon, saw, when Solomon saw how well the young man Jeroboam did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Jacob. And that labor force would become the issue that's going to lead the northern tribes to break away from Judah. Trouble and discontent were already present. But Jeroboam was in a position to become the magnet for the disgruntled. And as he, as of being a fellow northerner, dealt with the grievances and complaints of his fellow tribesmen, and they increasingly came to value his abilities and recognized his potential for leadership, we have read already that once again, the Lord has raised up yet another adversary. 
Now, sometimes even believers are baffled to understand exactly what God is doing in any given historical situation. We may claim to know, but frequently we have no more sure light than anybody else. Historical events in one sense are obscure and difficult to figure out what God may be doing at any given point. But here in 1 Kings chapter 11, the Bible writer is saying, God did this here, here, and here. Hadad, Rezon, and Jeroboam are not just accidental blobs that happen to appear, but rather their place, their time, and their impact took place at the beck and call of Yahweh's sovereign finger. So what we are seeing here is the very opposite of the deliverers he had raised up in the book of Judges. And that's what happens whenever our hearts turn away from the Lord. Because of God's justice, we are liable to suffer tragic consequences for our sin. And when that happens, like any good father, we should expect him to discipline us. Why? Because he truly, really does love us. Hebrews 12 says, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up those times he corrects you. Why? For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. So in closing, here's some important facts about God's discipline I think that is important for us to understand. Fact number one. God is a hands-on disciplinarian. Now, I know that some parents negotiate with their kids. Some take away privileges. And some, like my parents, took more of a hands-on approach, if you know what I mean. They applied the Board of Education to the seat of learning. You're thinking, they didn't beat you nearly enough, Bubba. But the passage above also makes it clear that God is also a hands-on disciplinarian. In other words, his discipline stings. Adam and Eve, who were banished from the Garden of Eden, could attest to this. So could their son Cain, who was cursed for murdering his brother. So could Lot's wife, who turned into a pillar of salt. We call her a podium of sodium around here. You'll get it later. So could Miriam, who was given leprosy for criticizing. And so could Achan, who was struck dead for stealing. Now the reason why God doesn't generally start drawing bullseyes and flinging lightning bolts at us is because as soon as we mess up, is because although he doesn't condone it, God expects us to sin from time to time. Sounds like heresy, doesn't it? How would I know that? Psalm 103.13 says, The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are, and he remembers we're only dust. The best of us, that's all we are. We are animated dirt. So it's the direction of our lives that concerns him most of all. When I counsel people, I always tell them, I'm more concerned about the trajectory of your life than the thing that's happening right now. I think that's how the Lord is. He takes the things that we're going through, and as long as he can use those things to once again get us on the right path, 
then we're golden. So it's the direction of our lives that concerns him most of all. Have you noticed how often the Bible talks about the life of faith being a path or a highway that we follow? For example, Proverbs 15.24 says, The path of life leads, uh, leads upwards to the wise. And Matthew 7.14 says, The gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few people find it. I think that God's discipline is most likely to be visited upon us not because we commit an isolated sin. But when we depart from that path of righteousness and go off in a completely different direction, and that's what Solomon did, expect the Lord to step in. But a lot of Christians, when they suffer, immediately assume that God has abandoned them. I hear it sometimes. Where is God? It's like he's deserted me, or even worse, it's like he's against me. And they don't stop to think that maybe the suffering they are experiencing is actually loving parental discipline coming from the very hand of God that they assume has vanished. That's why I sometimes challenge suffering people with some hard questions. Things like, have you gotten lazy in your spiritual life? Have you let some kind of sin creep in? Are you hiding anything? Just know it's always a mistake to equate new suffering with some failure on God's part. Because God is always on the side of the believer, the first question we should always ask should be of ourselves. Am I doing something that would make my Heavenly Father feel the need to discipline me? Perhaps the greatest example of this is in Numbers 21. It says, Then the people of Israel set out to Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with a long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here, and nothing to drink, and we hate this manna. I doubt that many of us would rank belly aching very high on our list of offensive sins. But God apparently does. Because he fashioned the mother of all disciplinary actions to deal with the Israelites complaining. It says, So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Now, when I read this passage about snakes infiltrating the Israelite camp, I know without a doubt that the comfort of his people is not God's number one priority. To be blunt, he doesn't mind terrorizing his people if that will lead them to repentance. In the case of the Israelites, they did repent, and pronto, right? Who wouldn't? The very next phrase has the people running up to Moses and confessing their sins. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Now, I know there are people who say that word fear is interchangeable with the word respect, and we should never be afraid of God in that traditional sense. Sorry, I'm not buying it. When I blew it as a kid, which was often, and my mother uttered those ominous words, Wait till your father gets home. Guess what? I was scared of him. 
I mean, I knew that he loved me, but I also know he didn't want me to end up in juvenile court. So he would intervene sometimes. I feel the same way about God. When I read about God sending a plague of poisonous snakes to bite and kill his people, I know he will do whatever it takes to trigger our repentance. Whatever it takes. Yes, I believe God wants me to be faithful and pull back from just a desire to not sin. But on those days when I cannot muster that desire, I believe God is content for me to pull back from sin simply because I'm scared to death of the disciplinary action he might take against me. So with all this in mind, I don't know of any way to be absolutely certain 100% of the time if a particular spot of trouble is God's discipline or if that's just the normal wear and tear of life. We do know, however, that God does discipline his children and that that discipline can be very painful. So that being the case, I believe the only sensible thing for any Christian to do when exploring this is to first examine yourself. Pray and ask God to search your heart and reveal to you anything that is amiss. And if something turns up, well, get busy and fix it. If Solomon had done this, how different his life and legacy would have been. Now, let's pray and eat chili. (laughs) Father, I do thank you. I thank you for all the times you have disciplined me. It has made me better. And it's let me know that you do love me. It even goes on in that Hebrews passage to say that if we are not disciplined, then we have no part with you because you discipline only your children. So Lord, I don't know the hearts of everyone in this room. If someone in here does not know you, I pray you reveal by your Holy Spirit, like that song that Steve sang, your redeeming power to save from slavery of sin. There are those in here, Lord, I know they have health problems. There are those whose family have health problems and all kinds of other things, Lord, that too numerous to even go into. The great thing is, Lord, you are the master over all those things. You are sovereign over everything. And let us give our life to you this morning in whatever ways that we need to. And as we get to eat this chili, Father, just pray that you would bless this. Bless those who prepared it. It's always a fun time. I think stuff like this is a small foretaste of heaven. Just good, clean fun. And so, Lord, bless it and bless our time together. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I guess the best way to do the chili is how, Rita? (laughs) Should we go like... Okay. I guess what we'll do is I go down the hallway as normal. John? Okay. Yes. So we have little, like, Dixie cups. Okay. So put one of those on the big plate and put, like, number one. Okay. So you know which ones are which. And then you can take them, I guess, back to the back. Or in here. Yeah. And you can try the different chilies and pick which ones you